Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Mike the Gardener podcast, sponsored by those lovely people at Natural Grower, who supply plant-based products for both organic and chemical-free gardening and your houseplants. Well, hello there. It's lovely to be back again as usual, as we head in earnest back into autumn. And so, this week's big question, (laughs) wait for it, have you put the central heating back on yet? This is important need-to-know information. I haven't, but it's close. It's going to happen very, very soon. I've spent too many evenings umming and ahhing, shall I, shan't I? Uh, So yes, very soon, I think. Well, this week, I have in my poor likes a wonderful book from the RHS and written by Gareth Richards entitled Weeds, The Beauty and Uses of 50 Vagabond Plants. Now, I don't know about you, but as gardeners, I think it's fair to say we have a fair bit of a love-hate relationship with weeds in our own garden. In fact, I was battling with cooch grass underneath a hookah just before I came in to record this episode with Gareth. Gareth's book is fascinating. 50 vagabond plants or weeds are showcased in the book to show them in a, well, let's say a different light. And of course, it's probably fair to say that weeds have been given a bit of a bad press. Well, yeah, media loves um, loves a horror story. Alien invaders take over the countryside and things, and I think there are very few that are kind of unequivocally bad. Gareth's book puts our weeds in the spotlight, and it's incredible to see how many of the weeds that we battle with in our own gardens have so many wonderful uses. Many having medicinal properties, some can be eaten, and some have even been used as fabric in years gone by. So let's start this week's podcast and find out all about this wonderful book. Well, Gareth Richards, thank you so much for joining me on the Mike the Gardener podcast. I have in my hand a copy of the new RHS book, Weeds, written by your good self, which we're going to talk about at length in the podcast. But I wondered if we could start with you explaining what your role is within the RHS. Sure, sure. So I'm what's called Group Features Editor. So I look after RHS podcasts, I look after editorial content on the website, and I also work on the magazine as well. So I have have kind, kind of quite a multifaceted role there, really. And how long have you been with the RHS? Gosh, I've been there since 2013. So I was a trainee on the Garden Mag, and then uh, they kept me on digitally, and then my, my role has kind of expanded over time. And you obviously enjoy your role. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. I love, I love the fact that we have we have all these amazing resources, um, and yet and we have quite a good we have such a good reach. We can help people whatever level they are in in gardening. So if you're kind of just beginning, you don't know which which end up to plant a bulb, we can we can help you. Or if you are a plant hunter and wants to know about the latest discoveries of autumn flowering daffodils from Andalusia, you know, we can we can cater for you as well. So uh, so yeah, it's good because you know when you're not in an office surrounded by people who are absolute plant nuts, there's always something to learn as well mm. and I've I've really really valued that. So are you based at Wisley? No, we have a strange little offshoot. Uh, the publishing arm of the RHS is based in Peterborough. So, oh, okay. Yeah, I know it's peculiar. It's um, it's just a little quirk of history, but um, but yeah. So we have a little publishing core where we where we look after books, podcasts, and all the, all of the RHS magazines as well, and the editorial content on the website. 
Oh, and I didn't realise that. I thought you were all based in this little hub at Wisley. I was no, no, no. very jealous about your view from your window. <laughs> uh, well, talking of books then, let's talk about the book. How did the book Weeds come about? I've always loved, I've always loved weeds. I've always had this thing for like the underdogs of the plant world. And when, so this is a bit of an admission, I was quite a geeky <laughs> kid. And um, when I was about, when I was 14, Flora Botanica came out. Have you ever, have you heard of yes. it? Yes. Yeah, the yes. Richard Maybe oh, yes. book. And I, I sat there and I pretty much just read it from cover to cover. And it, it did open my eyes to the beauty of our, our wild plants. And of course, in one of the, one of the interesting things about it is it's not just, um, it's not just about native plants. It's about everything that grows wild in, in Britain. And it kind of mm. opened my eyes to the fact that, we have ground out it was brought over by the romans as a pot herb there are fig trees growing wild by the river don in um in sheffield and just just the kind of exuberance of wild plants and their infinite variety and so i kind of loved wild plants and weeds ever since and as foraging and things like that have, have got more popular i've kind of become more kind of tuned in to weeds and having more conversations and then the chance came up to write this book and I just I just leapt at it. So this was a, an opportunity that was handed to you? Yeah I was asked to write it. Right person for the job from the sounds of it then. So it's subtitled The Beauty and Uses of 50 Vagabond Plants. Mm. So how did you make the selection of those 50 plants? Well I think it's it's plants that are kind of that do misbehave but actually have some redeeming qualities right so so you've got things like celandines which will which will go right through your borders mm. but they they're kind of beautiful in their own way like a japanese knotweed as well people think that japanese knotweed is just this awful plant and yes it is invasive and it does cause problems but if you stand by a, a stand of japanese knotweed plants in september mm. and you see them flowering and you hear the bees you can hear the bees before you see them. I, I was down in Dorset a few weeks ago and I was just shocked at this, this almost roar of bees coming from this standard Japanese knotweed. And I just thought, wow, this is amazing. And as I'm a beekeeper as well. And I know that actually stuff that flowers in late summer is, and early autumn is particularly useful. So along with um, Himalayan balsam, which is another classic uh it's another classic vagabond. It's, you know, people have balsam bashing parties and <laughs> and all sorts of things. Actually, it does have some redeeming qualities. It produces a hell of a lot of pollen and nectar for a pollinating insects at a time when there's actually not much else about. So, so you know, I like to, I'm slightly playing devil's advocate in the book in many ways. Well, that's what I was going to ask you because we all have this relationship with the weeds in our garden. In fact, just prior to coming in to talk to you, I was pulling cooch grass out from underneath the hookra. Yeah. And I know I have always had a, a vengeance with this cooch grass, but having read the book, I know that cooch grass also has some very beneficial uses as well. It's edible. There's medicinal uses to it as well. So yeah. you then start to look at things differently. Yeah, just in a different way. And, and that's another thing. Um, the, the more I research the book, the more I realise that actually weeds have a really valuable ecological role. Because as as we go into um, this the climate crisis and there's ever more people and we we damage the world ever more, something I something I I realised is actually that weeds are kind of nature's first responders. 
So we smash a we smash some road through some arable fields or something, and what are the first things that come up? It's pineapple weed. It's um, buddleia. It's like nightshade and things, and they they are and buddleia, yeah, and and they are trying to heal the wounds that we inflict on the earth. They kind of they rush in. I was going to ask you about first responders because I don't know if you know the Winchester bypass. They cut through the beautiful downs at Winchester to make a bypass. And there was this awful bare soil and face of the um, bypass, which was very soon populated by Budlia. And it's just now known as the Budlia bypass. Amazing. Yeah. So those are your first responders. Exactly. Yeah. They're the things that have the have the um abilities to just rush in and just and just make the most of it yeah and while we're talking about buddleia this is something that really surprised me people think oh it's just one dimensional oh you know it's it will only it's not native so it okay there's a few butterflies on it but actually there are dozens and dozens of species that feed on the leaves as well so it's really oh. yeah it was in uh, jennifer owen was was a pioneering scientist who did a study 30 years um Oh, the name of it slightly escapes me. Uh, the Wildlife of a Garden, a 30-year study, and it was this absolutely seminal, seminal work where she mm. researched all of the life that was in her really quite ordinary suburban garden in Leicestershire. And she found, and her husband found, that um, there was this whole host of life that had adapted to feed on Budlia. And you think this is amazing. This is a plant that's only been here less than 100 years, or roughly 100 years or so. Okay. Um, and already... Our native wildlife is kind of making the most of it, and and that's the thing. Like you, I was in Dorset. Well, I, I'm I live in Dorset, Lucky and you. the uh, the Japanese knotweed I saw flowering just a few weeks ago, and said a buzz of bees mm. and wildlife around it. It was it was quite an eye opener. A to see Japanese knotweed, but then after having got through the horror of like, oh, gosh, this is it. It's the first time I'd seen it. To see the the bees, the pollinators buzzing around, it was incredible. Yeah, it's quite, I mean, you have to have some kind of respect for these plants. I love, I love the fact that, you know, it's evolved to pierce lava flows in Japanese, yes. um, next to Japanese volcanoes. It's tough as old boots and it will pierce, it will pierce concrete in a car park in Hoxton just as easily as a lava flow on Hokkaido. And I think, in a way, I just think, good for you, you know? <laughs> it, exactly, yeah. Tough little plants. Now, it's an age-old question, but I, my apologies for asking it. What is the definition of a weed? H- having done the research, what is your definition of a weed? Well, it's a, yeah, it's a plant in the wrong place, a plant where we don't want it. And some, some people will say that anywhere that one of these plants is, is is wrong outside of its native habitat. But what what I'm trying to get across in the book is that actually, I think, I think sometimes these plants have a valuable ecological role to play outside of their native habitat, because what's native is kind of, I personally feel that that's becoming less relevant by the day as our climate changes. What was native here at the end of the last ice age, which is where we kind of freeze our definition of native, might not necessarily be native now and we mm. need we need to kind of accept that that ecosystems change over time and actually we're never going to get rid of japanese knotweed entirely no. in this country it's it's impossible ditto himalayan balsam so yes we might want to get rid of it in some places where it does pose a threat to native ecosystems but equally if it's on some terribly polluted riverside in an industrial area 
perhaps perhaps that's less of a problem and we need to focus our efforts elsewhere. Now, in my own garden here in Bournemouth, I have the native primrose, Primula vulgaris, which self-seeds prolifically mm. across the whole garden. Now, interestingly, the garden I came to came from, I couldn't grow it for love nor money. Yeah. And now I've gone from one extreme to another. Now, I guess the other thing they say about weeds is it's depriving nutrients, light um, from cultivated plants. Yeah, in, that's a really interesting point because yes, if you're, you know, if you're trying to grow beetroot and fat hen seeds all over it, and the fat hen will grow to six feet and the beetroot will grow to six inches, then yeah, absolutely, you've got a problem. But one thing that I think is really important to no- notice is that weeds actually do perform really valuable ecological roles. So if you have weeds in your lawn, so say you have a lawn that's full of clover and dandelions and yarrow and things like that actually that becomes really good for pollinators but also it will feed itself because the mm. clover will fix nitrogen from the air the dandelions will their roots will go much deeper than the grass roots so when the dandelion dies it will bring nutrients up from the subsoil that kind of thing so actually they they have all these kind of real like hidden superpowers i'd say and also you know if you if you have a more diverse root structure your lawn will be less prone to flooding it'll be less prone to compaction that kind of yeah. thing so it will make your lawn more resilient so we've we've got a lot of learning to do about weeds and this is what i found reading the book there is this dichotomy of oh it's cooch grass i don't want that in my garden i've never wanted it in the garden but there are some benefits to yeah. mankind from this particular plant from from your relationship with weeds in your lifetime has researching the book changed your perspective from your viewpoint yeah i think it has because i i view them as kind of an opportunity in a way so if so if for example i have a load of cooch grass in a bed i yes i will still dig it up because i don't want a bed of cooch grass but yeah i will rot the rot the roots in a bucket of water and, and the minerals contained within those roots will then leach out and I'll use that water as fertilizer so I'll use I will kind of view them as an opportunity and also it's kind of what weeds you have can kind of tell you about the state of your soil or the state of your garden so they can be really useful indicators so for example if you've got a lawn that's full of creeping buttercup that's probably telling you it's a bit wet. And if you're, if you're trying to make yeah. a bowling green lawn and it's just all you grow is creeping buttercup, maybe it's time to put the mower away, grow a wildflower meadow, plant some snake's head fritillary bulbs and just relax and enjoy it a bit, you know? So I think weeds can be very useful as, as um, signposts. I mean, things like um, if you have lots of uh, broadleaf plantain in your beds and borders, actually that can be a sign that the soil is compacted so maybe you want to you want to think about breaking it up or mulching or, or what have you. So I think they're I think they're really useful, even though we don't always like them. They they can generally tell us something. So one of my favourite little weed hacks is hairy bittercress. So do, do you know it? Yes. Oh, I know hairy bittercress. It will come with plants from the garden centre, won't it? And you'll and you'll hear it pinging those seeds up. So you can actually lot... feel them as they hit your yeah. face. If you touch the the seed head and it's ready to go, they often sort of fire into your eyes and up your nose. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's a plant that yeah lets you know it's there, but it tastes amazing. So if you so this is something that I quite often let grow in my greenhouse because I grow lots of salads over winter, and if you have hairy bittercress. 
in amongst your salads. Actually, it's delicious. It tastes a bit like, um, it's like a mix between rocket, watercress and horseradish. So if you... Now, I've never eaten it. So Dude, I, need to head, I need to head out into the garden and have a nibble on any that I've left behind. Yeah, definitely. Because, um, and it's also, it's a good winter weed as well. So if you have it in the summer, it will probably be quite small and tough and, and just overly, overly hot. But if you have it in the winter when, or autumn or spring, when the conditions are a bit milder, it will be a bit more lush and a bit more leafy. And it's, it's great. You can just sprinkle it as a garnish. If you eat meat, it'd be really good on a beef sandwich. If you don't, then uh, put it onto kind of like miso broths and things like that. Yeah, it's a it's a really fun little thing to have. Oh, I didn't realise that. I, again, it's one of those weeds that I do battle with in my own garden, um, but was unaware of, of yeah. those properties yeah, as definitely. well. Yeah, definitely. Try it. Try it. So it's just this re-education. Do you think, do you think weeds have been given a little bit of um, bad press in, in some, some of the media? Well, yeah, media loves um, loves a horror story. Alien invaders take over the countryside and things. And I think there are very few that are kind of unequivocally bad. We appear to have a bit of a campaign at the moment of more naturalistic planting. So do you think this is an opportunity for weeds to have a bit of a moment? I think, they, I think yeah, absolutely. There seems to be quite a trend in gardening for people to want to rewild and become a bit more, yeah, have, have a more naturalistic feel. And I think weeds are an important part of that. And maybe it's just actually our definition of what is a weed is, is, is changing because I think the number of people that aspire to a perfect bowling green lawn is, is rapidly diminishing. Mm. And the rest, the rest of us are more happy to see a bit of clover and some, and some daisies and things. So I think, yeah, I think they are kind of, some of them are, are definitely coming in from the cold. And from an aesthetic and garden worthiness perspective, are there any weeds that you think we could quite easily cultivate within our gardens without having this, oh my goodness, oh, me, look out there. Yeah, absolutely. So celandines, celandines are wonderful in my book because they're, they're one of those like, you know, when a certain plant really marks a time in the year. Yes. And, yeah. And with me, for me, celandines, you have that moment in late February when suddenly the sun is just that bit stronger and you have that feeling that, you know, spring is on its way and it's just just magical. And that is the moment that the celandines pop out and they're just they're just so joyful. And yes, they the wild species will invade your garden. If you've got shady damp borders, they will go over. But they're only four inches tall, maximum, and they will disappear <laughs> As soon, almost as soon as they've flowered. So it's not going to, you know, it's not going to shade anything else out. It's not going to be a big problem. And also there are lots of cultivated varieties. So there's a beautiful one. There's, there's Brazen Hussey, which was selected Brazen by Hussey, Chris, yes. Christopher Lloyd at yeah. um, Great Dixter, which has those lovely bright orange flowers and the, and the purple leaves. And then there's been a, a bit of breeding work. Joe Sharman from Monk Silver Nursery. Did you see the uh, article in Gardens Illustrated? They, they did this beautiful spread of all these um, celandines that he's grown. And some of them are white flowered with um, beautiful purple backs. Some of them are double flowered oh, no. and they're really, they're like miniature water lilies. They're gorgeous. So quite often I think you can, yeah, look at cultivated varieties of the weed and you'll have a really, you know, strong growing, vigorous garden <laughs> plant, but something that's quite beautiful. They use the white flowered rose bay willow herb in Sissinghurst in the yes. white garden, for example. So, you know, I think if you've got that, if you've got the purple one growing locally, maybe try the white one in your garden. 
And I think that's the thing, because the purple rose bay willow herb, 80,000 seeds per plant. That's quite a that's quite a big it's number prolific, to have yes. <laughs> to have seeding across your borders. But they're easy enough. They are easy enough to weed out. And, um, and you know, I, I think also it, perhaps it's about managing them differently. So maybe don't let them don't let them go to seed once the last flowers faded. Chop off those chop off those ripening seed pods and uh, put them in your brown bin. Um but you also talk in the book about the importance of recognising weed seedlings to help with that exercise of weedling out what you don't want. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's I think that's one of the best skills you can uh, have as a gardener is learning to recognise seedlings, and then actually making that judgment call of oh well, do actually might that look beautiful here? Like for example, um, one plant I think is going to going to become a weed in the future is Fabina benariensis. We're seeing it seed more <laughs> yes. and more and more. And I think that's that's one to watch as our climate changes. Um, but there's been loads of times when I've had it seed around the garden and they, the seedlings look like absolutely nothing at all, but you leave mm. them. And it's funny, isn't it? It's always the, the healthiest, strongest growing plants are the ones that you haven't planted yourself. You know, you buy one for 15 quid in the garden centre and it will sit there, but the one that seeded <laughs> itself will just... Whoosh, well, I have to say, I have a bean of Benariensis in my garden, and it does self-seed prolifically. And people always say, oh, gosh, you know, look at all those seedlings. But it, I'm a gardener, and the, the act of gardening is to be able to nip out those ones you don't want. And with the bean of Benariensis, there's a slight purple tinge to the foliage. Yeah. So you can see those and fish them out. Absolutely. And I, I also like your point about taking off the seed heads before they actually get to the point mm. of spilling over the garden. I have dandelions in the garden. I think they're the most beautiful flowers aren't they just yeah visited by pollinators mm. just take off the seed heads when yeah. it gets to the point when that little sort of like clock of seed heads comes up i just nip them off. off yeah it's it's just yeah. yeah there's some fantastic weeds that we have in our garden that i think we really start to need to step back and appreciate yeah absolutely and it's it's a lovely job isn't it deadheading it's just you know, it's not difficult. It's something you can do with a cup of tea or a glass of wine in your hand. And it's almost like a form of meditation. You know, you just just lose yourself in it. It's, it's a lovely thing to do. So why not? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, of course, we have both perennial weeds and annual weeds. Um, is there any difference in the impact on our gardens of perennial and annual weeds? Yes, there is, because perennials will... Um, perennials obviously by their nature can have a longer term effect and it can be slightly more insidious so for example if you've ever if ever dug up a one of your prized herbaceous perennials and found spears of cooch grass gr growing through it then that can be uh, a bit alarming shall I say um, yeah, I'm, I'm nodding knowingly yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, whereas annual weeds annual weeds are much quicker to invade so so but they're also quicker to get rid of so you know just the hoe is your friend i think when it comes to mm. chickweed and things like that whereas perennial weeds takes a bit more kind of perseverance to get rid of and um and yeah you just have to you just have to be more a bit more on it and this is a lesson i keep trying to learn on my allotment and then i <laughs> uh, keep having busy time in the summer and you know going away for weekends and other outrageous things like that and suddenly <laughs> you know the cooch grass has got another foot away from the herb bed so uh so i think the secret with perennial weeds is it's like a war of attrition yeah keep going keep yeah. fighting yeah and and so really what we're saying and you, again you say in the book is that weeds are more perception than definition aren't they yeah it's it's really yeah, key. i mean this was one of the things that i was i was researching uh weeds around the world and agapanthus is a terrible weed in parts of australia 
Yes, and you just think yes. that's mental. You know, we would pay £10 for a little pot of it and we absolutely love it. So it's kind of familiarity breeds contempt, I think. Yeah. And yeah, and this is the other reason why I've been quite big on trying to get people to understand the Latin names and the plant families as well, because I think if you call something, but if you know its name and you know its plant family, you can kind of put it in context. You might have a bit more respect for it. And I feel like yes. um, there's a real unsung hero um, of, of the weed world, which is the sycamore. It's a personal kind of, this is a bugbear of mine that people demean it as this weed tree, right? Because if you think about what sycamores are doing in our countryside and in our cities, we've lost... We've lost elm trees to Dutch elm disease. We're losing ash trees to ash dieback. We need deciduous trees that will seed quickly and will support native wildlife and behave as other native trees do. And sycamore fits the bill perfectly. I mean, Mm -hmm. okay, it doesn't have as many host-specific insects as oaks do, but it actually supports a greater mass. So you get aphids... Uh, all over them in the springtime, which will then feed blue tits. And, and you know, it's like the basis of our terrestrial food chain is the mm. aphid in, in, some, mm. in some respects, are like the plankton of our gardens. Um, and so sycamore can have a really, can actually have quite a beneficial effect. I know they're annoying. They, they do seed everywhere. But yes. I think they're actually, they're trying to help us out of this mess that we're creating. And yeah, so sycamores... Going back to my point about putting them into botanical context, sycamores are aces, aces like mm. Japanese maples. And you look at the seeds and it becomes obvious, but just looking at a tree, this great, a great big sycamore tree and your dainty little Japanese maple, you might not think they're related, but they are. And uh, I, just, I just think it helps us to uh, appreciate them a bit more. Yeah, I, the one thing I got from reading the book is I need to step back and reevaluate mm. and clear my mind of all the nonsense about weeds that has been fed into there over the years yeah people we have this obsession with tidiness as well and some and sometimes it's 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 things that are beyond our control and i think that's what's upset people is that it's they feel that they're not in control and we like to feel we you know traditionally we've liked to have quite manicured gardens it was a symbol of you know man's dominion over nature Mm. but i think I think it's quite interesting if you look back at garden history. So in early Victorian times, um, everything was very sort of, you know, bedding plants and maintained lawns. As soon as they invented the lawnmower, gardening was very precise. And then almost as soon as that had started to develop, we had like the arts and crafts movement and slightly less, slightly (laughs) less garden effect. And I think we've gardening has kind of had these peaks and troughs ever since of, of how wild people want things to look but I think it's a very much a, a 21st century trend it probably probably since about nine, the mid 90s when this whole meadow um, new perennials movement came in I think mm. the movement has been consistently towards a more wild style of garden and I think appreciating weeds and kind of blurring the boundaries between what you think is a weed and what isn't uh, is is an increasing trend and it's not going to go away. Interestingly as well, you touched on the history then. The book does cover the background and history of the weeds as well. Uh, and some of the weeds you've mentioned in the book actually refer to place names. Um, yeah. Got some, yeah um, 
Nettlestead and Nettlepot, obviously yes. referring back to the ah, nettle. Yeah. So this, sorry, yes. So we, you did mention about you mentioned about fabrics um, earlier. So the nettle. Yes, it was nettles, right? <laughs> yes. Um, so yeah, they've. It it's it does it almost seems a bit cheeky to call call nettles a weed in some respects because they've been historically so important. Mm. Um, you know, you can eat them as a pot herb. They have the really good source of vitamin C and iron, folic acid. Um, early in the spring when there's not many vegetables about so actually you know they probably warded off a lot of scurvy in olden times and you can beat the the stems to make fabric you can make homemade um homemade garden twine quite easily by stripping the stems obviously use a gardening gloves but you can um it's a fairly fairly simple thing to do and they will last all wow. season um but yeah it's it's interesting to see how much some of these weeds have woven their sel- themselves into our culture by looking at place names mm. so yeah there's i think it was nettle pot in county durham to nettlestead that's, in kent there's uh, that's it yeah there's um yeah there's an amazing number of these names and again it's just nice to, that's all included within the book and the other thing that is also very obviously included within the book is some exquisite botanical images. And I just wondered, how did you select those? Where did they come from? So the RHS has been collecting botanical art pretty much since it started. So we have this fantastic uh, resource called the Lindley Library. And we're actually, interestingly, I've just been in a conversation with the head of libraries who's who's doing this enormous project to digitize the collections and we're making much more of it available to people online so if you want to see some of this beautiful botanical art there's more and more is 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 becoming available to the public for free to access so yeah we have this treasure trove of um botanical art from from some of it's from china some of it's from europe you know it's been collected over 200 years and we're still producing it today as well and it's lovely to see it reproduced in mm. books like yours. Uh, again, as an artist, it's just looking at those. I'm actually, I've just turned, opened up the book and I've got Harry Bittercress. And it's a oh, beautiful yeah. illustration. Yes. It really is. Something that could be framed and put on a wall. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if you don't like it, buy it. If you don't like the text, frame the pictures. <laughs> <laughs> and the text is absolutely perfect as well. Thank you so, so much. <laughs> is this your first book? It's my first solo book. Yeah, I was a um, I co-wrote "Do Bees Need Weeds?" I seem to have fallen into a, a weeds <laughs> pigeonhole. Um, but yes, it was a wildlife gardening book that I wrote last year. Came out, and yeah, came out last November. Whereas this this weeds book came out this June. And so, how is it now when you walk into a shop and see your book on the shelf? I almost don't believe it. I just, yeah, it's kind of <laughs> like a life lifelong dream to kind of be able to put put all of these things between covers and, and share it and share that love and share yeah share the uh share the love of weeds with people and I hope I've I hope I've changed a few hearts and minds well as I say as a an experienced gardener um I use that term very loosely um I found it just a brilliant uh read and has already say started to change the way I think about weeds in my own garden Excellent. yes of course I don't <laughs> want loads of cooch grass growing under my plants mm. but as you said I can take that out put it in water and make something from it so already you start to use in a in a bit in a different way um the one thing you say in the book as well it's a quote from uh what was his name the universe is full of magical things patiently waiting for our wits to grow sharp 
Uh, was that someone? Oh, uh, Eden Philpotts. Eden Philpotts, yeah. yeah. And I just thought it was a lovely thing, written over a hundred years yeah. ago. Yeah. And, and so for me, that sort of summed up the essence of this book. That's the thing, isn't it? You know, these these plants are all they're all common plants. They're all already there. They're just yeah, they're just waiting for us to kind of appreciate them. And and I yeah, I really hope that people do appreciate them a bit more. You've got this book on the shelves. Is there another one buzzing around in your head now? Not yet. Not yet. I think I need a rest. <laughs> I wrote this one and then had and had the house re-roofed in, at almost the same time. So I need a bit of rest. <laughs> so how long was the process from start to finish? It was not long. It was, yeah, it was something like four months. It was really, really intense. Goodness me. Yeah. Gosh, that is intense. But you obviously had a fair amount of knowledge, as you said earlier, yeah. about weeds anyway. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it was very, very intensive and lots of, you know, taking holiday from from work, writing about plants to then write about plants was <laughs> was was quite an experience. Gosh, yes, I bet. But, you know, it was really good fun. And, you know, when you're passionate about something, it doesn't feel quite the same, quite the same amount of work as if you yeah. as if you weren't enjoying it and, you know, learning so much while I was doing it. So, well, it's a fascinating book. It's the RHS Weeds, The Beauty and Uses of 50 Vagabond Plants, written by Gareth Richards. Gareth, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to chat to me today. Um, I will post some images on my stories for the podcast and on my Instagram feed as well. Oh, thank you so lovely. much. That's great. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Wow. Wasn't that fascinating? Now, don't tell me that you won't be going out into your own gardens and looking at weeds in a slightly different way to how you did before you listened to the podcast. Yes, as I said in the podcast, I don't want weeds overtaking my garden, but I do have a few dandelions poking out of some of the borders, and I do keep an eye on them because they can get a little bit excitable, but I really do have a greater appreciation and even some respect for some of our vagabond plants. My thanks to Gareth for taking time out of his busy schedule to have a chat with me about the book, which is published by Welbeck, and it really is a great read. And as I said, some fantastic illustrations throughout. So I'll be back with you next week for some more great gardening banter. So do come and join me then. And as always, if you haven't subscribed or followed, please do, because there's still loads more to come in the weeks ahead. And I would be overjoyed if you could spend a few moments to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. So my friends, have a wonderful week. And if you can get out into the garden, weather allowing, enjoy. Oh, and don't forget, you can contact me at the show's email address, mikethegardener01 at gmail.com. And that's Mike with an M-I-C. Or why not head over to my Instagram account, Mike underscore the gardener, and that's Mike, M-I-K-E, where there's lots more gardening fun, weekly lives for my own garden every Sunday at 10 o'clock British summertime, and plenty more gardening banter with some great gardening personalities. And I'll see you next week. Bye-bye for now. Bye-bye.